Namaste. Thank you very much uh, to our live stream audience and to um, everyone coming along uh, in this uh, fourth part of the Karma Yoga of the Bhagavad Gita series. So today we'd like to be dealing with um, some of the questions that have arisen and um, I know some people are eager to ask some more questions uh, on the series that we've put out. But before speaking, I'd like to offer my uh, most humble respects to my spiritual teachers, um, to my Siksha Guru, Siddha Swarupananda Paramahamsa, and to my Diksha Guru, Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. Namaum Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Sri Mati Siddhis Varupananda Paramahamsa Iti Namane Namaste Saraswati Devi Gauravani Pracharane Nirvishesha Sunyavadi Vasatya Deshatarane Bhajasri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda, Sri Advaita Galadhar, Sri Vasadi Gaur Bhakta Vinnam. Hey Krishna Kauruna Sindhu, Dinabandhu Jagatpate, Gopisha Gopika Kandaradha, Kantanamostate. Haribol. So, um, uh, Mike, you had raised uh, a question uh, in relation to the whole idea even of, of karma, where you had asked um, a person who experiences some bad karma, uh, they may say that, look, I, I, don't, I don't remember I don't remember having engaged in the activity that has caused this bad karma. And of course, the implication is then that it's kind of like not fair, you know, that I should be held accountable for something I, I can't even remember. And um, that really is, I think, a, a very relevant question. A lot of people have these, mm, let me just step back for a second. If you are going to try and really appreciate the principles that we're talking about, it is necessary to consider if I'm going to question something, what is my current belief or understanding? What am I accepting as truth that forms the basis for this question? What's the relevance of that in relation to this question? The relevance is this. If I am very much living in this idea or notion that this life I have is the only life I've had, 
if I accept the idea that I am this body, then that question sort of like makes a huge amount of sense. But if we look at that same question from the spiritual perspective that's promoted in the Vedas, that I am an eternal spiritual being and I move. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna has said that for one who is born, death is certain. And for one who dies, birth is certain. And he speaks in another verse about how the living being in this lifetime, in this lifetime, goes from being experiencing the body of a baby to a young child, to a youth, to an adult, and to old age. So we see that even in this lifetime, there is this these transitions. I mean, it's like these periods of life are kind of quite different. The things that we are attracted to, our perception of the world and our worldly experience, it really differs in each one of these phases of life. Yet there is this consistency that I am the same person experiencing this chain of events and these different, very clear um, experiences of life in this body and in this world. And then he goes on to say in that same verse that just as a person should not be bewildered by these changes that are occurring, one should not be bewildered that at the time of death, the death of the body, that this living being continues to exist and now begins this cycle all over again. So that is the, that is the platform of understanding. And so if we have that understanding and we've really come to appreciate it and realize it, then the question of it's not fair that I don't remember what happened in the past sort of, okay, now I've got a different realization of that. Whereas if I'm thinking in terms of my body being who I am and this life that I'm living right now and this body is the only thing, then it's kind of like, uh, you know, that's, that's horribly unfair. But it's kind of like we can use the example somebody gets totally intoxicated, they get drunk out of their mind, and then they go and cause a riot somewhere, get into a fight, crash a car, they can do all kinds of insane things while being heavily intoxicated. Wake up the next morning in jail, and then complain, why am I put in jail? And they were told, oh, because you did this or you did that. And you go, I don't remember that. <laughs> so just as in this lifetime and our experience in this life, we are held accountable for things that we do, even if we don't remember what we have done and we think that that's okay, from a bigger perspective, 
it is um, also ex completely acceptable and understandable that just because I cannot remember what actions I have engaged in in previous in a previous body, it doesn't mean that I become free from the responsibility of having to accept the result of those actions. So, you know, Mike, when you raised this question a little earlier before we, we live streamed here, you know, you had made mention of some famous case, I think it was in America, was it? Somewhere where a, a, a judge um, had passed a sentence upon someone for committing a quite horrific and serious crime, if I recall what you were saying. And um, the person had no real uh, either recollection or they were overwhelmed by some tremendous emotion. And now they seem to be completely rational and completely maybe even repentant for what had happened and everything. And the judge made the comment that his sentencing was based upon uh, not the current state of mind of the offender, but the state of mind at the time that a crime was committed. And that's a quite relevant point. Of course, it's also a contentious point, you know, because there are people that are saying that if I did not, you know, I wasn't myself when I did that, therefore I should not be so accountable. Um, from the karmic perspective, that is really not the case. There is an understanding that um, karma is a very complex issue. And there are mitigating circumstances. Two people can engage in the same activity, but they can be doing things with different understandings and with different motivations. And the karmic result will be different. It's not everything is so incredibly um, and irrationally cut and dried. It's not, it's not like that. You know, and, and your question, Mike, sort of raises the point that sometimes people are, well, what if I don't believe in karma? And it's kind of like, well, <laughs> how do you answer that? You know, it's like, well, what you actually believe is almost like irrelevant. It's like saying, what if I don't believe in gravity? <laughs> you know, just because you give up the belief in gravity, it doesn't mean you float off in the air. No, that's not the reality of things. So... Um, people will say, well, that's not a fair comparison because it's evident and it's immediate. But that can be also the same thing with karma. Karma meaning action and the result of it. If I hit my hand with a hammer, is the karmic result of that action not immediate? <laughs> yes. This is also karma. You perform an action, there will be a, a, a reaction. There will be an experience attached to that, a fruit of that action. A person says, well, you know, what about, you know, that's not a, also a fair example. Well, it actually is. 
But karma deals with action, whether um, the result is immediate or future or, or whatever. That that's, doesn't change things. For example, I can decide to give up eating in a... I, I can begin to eat in a very unhealthy way. I don't know if you guys ever saw that um, uh, video, what was it, um, Supersize Me, where some guy went on a binge where the, he, he would not eat anything other than fast food for 30 days. And of course, <clears throat> in doing it, and if anybody offered, sir, can we, what's the term? Can we... Um, they, they have this, you know, kind of like upgrade you type of thing, you know, to this thing. And can you, it's called supersizing. He's, you know, he would voluntarily accept it. And so he was often eating more than required. And the food was so unhealthy that even just over halfway through the 30-day period, the doctor that was monitoring his health advised him. He was rapidly reaching a point where he was going to do irreparable harm to his body and perhaps even cause his death. So, you know, if I use the example that, that I choose a course of action that will lead in the very near future or, in, or you know, a little bit longer term future where there will be some result of it, this is all still part of the laws of karma. We should not think of it simply in the terms of, oh, something bad happens to me right now. It's tied to a previous life. No, that's, that's not a very mature understanding of karma. So karma is a very complex issue. And karmic, the laws of karma are very um, complicated. It is not just a, a belief system. Um, but it is it is very complex and it explains you know sometimes people have this question um you know why do bad things happen to good people which was a question that came up also a little earlier before we went um went live here and it's sort of like sometimes people have adopted I'm going to say a method, a methodology of trying to make life better through having a really positive outlook on life. And that if I have kind of like this really positive outlook, that my life is just going to be fine and fantastic. It's all going to be beautiful and wonderful and filled with, with happiness. And while it is true that if I develop a very positive outlook to life, and particularly if I'm quite humble and, and um, caring, it may dramatically affect the quality of my life experience, but it will not eradicate or counteract some bad things, what I consider bad things, that may come my way due to some previous 
karmic activity, whether in this lifetime or previously. So for instance, somebody may question, oh, this person was so good. They were so kind and so nice and everything. How come, you know, all of a sudden they were killed in a car crash or something really unfortunate happened to them in some way or other? Well, the reality is your current good actions and your current positive outlook on life is not going to offset or eradicate karmic reaction. It just doesn't happen that way. I'm sorry. It's, that's, not, that's not a practical reality at all. So um, now moving on a little, um, I think uh, Jen Masami asked the question, um, how does karma affect a person who does meditation? And of course, that's like, mm, okay, what do we mean by does meditation? You know, the, the process of spiritual undertaking is, is a gradual process of spiritual development and realization. And in the very beginning of our spiritual endeavor, while we are undergoing this purification process, we may experience benefit, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be an instant transformation of our consciousness, that we're going to become suddenly fully enlightened or realized. That's that's not a reality. That's not how things happen. So that will change or become determined by um, the effect that has happened. Well, no, let, let me, sorry, let me just step back a little bit. It's not until a person has become to or come to the transcendental platform that they become relieved even of the burden of previous karmic actions. If you recall, I think we read during the series, and if not, I'll read it now, but it's, it's very relevant. In the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which is titled Karma Yoga, um, from verse 20 through to 23, I think, yes, 20 through to the 23, says, a, and, and what it does, it, it lays out the condition that one needs to come to and the position to be in, in order to be relieved of both engaging in karmic activity and experiencing the karmic fruit from previously. One needs to come to this transcendental position. And here it's described, abandoning all attachments to the results of his activities, ever satisfied and independent. He performs no fruit of action, although engaged in all types of undertakings. So this is a description of a person on the transcendental position. Such a man of understanding acts with his mind and intelligence perfectly controlled and gives up all sense of proprietorship of his possessions and acts only for the bare necessities of life. 
thus working, he is not affected by karmic or sinful reactions. He who is satisfied with gain which comes of its own accord, who is free from duality and does not envy, who is steady both in success and failure, is never entangled, although performing actions. The work of a man who is unattached to the modes of material nature and who is fully situated in transcendental knowledge merges entirely into transcendence. So this is not like some really far off and distant ideal. As we had explained in the third part of the series, that if one comes to the situation that Krishna speaks of in the Gita, where one is able to completely dovetail their life with the will of the Supreme, one dovetails their will with the will of the Supreme, then one's life is experienced as being completely transcendental. This word dovetail is, is a wonderful word. A lot of people don't understand it anymore. It's kind of, there, there is a carpentry term where they talk about a dovetail joint. And in a dovetail joint on the end of one piece of wood, they, car, they cut what are like triangular shapes, like the tail of a dove. And on the other piece of wood, it's an opposite shape. So that when they fit, they fit perfectly together and completely lock and become like one piece of wood. So when one is able to live a life where their will is completely um, dovetailed with the will of the Supreme, then one will be living a life that is actually fully transcendental. And this process is, or this state, is arrived at quite easily in the sense that it doesn't require that one become enormously qualified to get into this condition. As we had stated in the, in the last um, talk, that if we come to this position that Krishna speaks of, where he says, all that you do, all, all that you eat, all that you offer and give away, all austerity that you perform, everything should be done as an offering unto me. So when a person has come to this condition where they are in great humility and with a with actually with great joy. It's not like an artificial imposition, with great joy. They make an offering of their life, their whole life and their undertaking. When their whole life becomes a humble and sweet offering to the Supreme, then one is able to come to this transcendental condition. So, um, I, I think I, I just wanted to, to touch on one additional point that um, we've received. Uh, somebody asked the question in relation to um, the idea that when there is suffering in the world, some people, a great calamity, people become very 
angry at God or their idea or concept of God and say that God could not possibly exist because if he did, why is he causing all of this suffering? And that is understood in the Vedas from this perspective. Number one, the laws that govern material nature, which are very stringent laws, are there to create order and to make it so things function in what we understand to be a very normal and natural way. These are natural laws. And suffering is not caused by God or some higher being or some spiritual truth or entity. Rather, it is caused by people's own acts in different ways. So um, I'm just going to leave it there. It's, that's a very deep subject and it requires quite a bit of considerable contemplation upon to really understand and appreciate. But having said that, people that misunderstand these things, people that misunderstand the laws of karma may also become insensitive to the suffering of others. You know, somebody is suffering and it's like, well, they deserved it. If we make this statement or we think this way, then this is profoundly unfortunate that somebody could be in this state. Nobody, no spiritual entity deserves to suffer. If we think that way, we are very far from any real spiritual understanding. While there may be laws of action and reaction, the laws of karma, for instance, and many other types of natural laws that govern our lives and existence within the material world. The feeling that we can be callous to somebody else's suffering or the idea that somebody deserves to suffer is really contrary to all spiritual teaching and spiritual principle. That also is a very big subject. And we don't really have time to deal with that. So I'm just touching on it very briefly here and asking that people maybe um, contemplate upon that and uh, undertaking a spiritual practice that brings about enlightenment, uh, a practice that is focused on meditation and primarily kirtan meditation is something that will make it so that we can have deeper, um, increasing and compassionate realizations and understandings of our life and the lives of others. So with that, I'd like to thank you very, very much and um, invite you to join with us um, in uh, a little kirtan. I'll ask um, Ali to accompany us on the harmonium please and we'll use the same mantra that we've used uh, 
in the first two parts of the series, um, Haribol Nitai Gor, Nitai Gor Haribol. And if our live streaming operator has got it together, again, we will see the mantra on the bottom of the screen. Thank you very much. Oh 